All of you on the good earth. One, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 705 for the week of Monday, June 8th, 2015. Essentially for the month of May since it's been quite a while though. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome Gene. Hey Sawyer, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. Hello everyone. And welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, aka Craftless. Thanks for having me again, Sawyer. Glad to have you back, because it has been quite a while. It's been about a month, but a lot has happened to all of us within that month. But more importantly, a lot has happened to the world of space within that last month, and let's talk about that. Although, we're going to start things off with some relatively timely news for when this episode will be coming out. And that is that hopefully, by the time this episode airs, the Expedition 43 crew will be home after one of the longest ISS expeditions to date. It will be approximately 200 days long, and in doing so, we'll set some new records, including the longest time in space for a woman, and that will be set by Samantha Cristoforetti, passing Suni Williams. And in addition, Terry Virts, who's the current commander, will hold the second longest time in space for a male U.S. astronaut, too. So, a lot of records coming in there, although those were never intended when this mission launched, right? That's correct, Sawyer. Unfortunately, we had the loss of the uh, 59 Progress uh, vessel, which uh, unfortunately, due to a malfunction on the uh, Soyuz booster, we lost the bird, essentially. Progress 59, unfortunately, burned up in the atmosphere after going into an uncontrollable turn, tumble, and according to what I'm reading here on TOS from this morning, Roscosmos has concluded that the cause of the accident was, quote, an abnormal separation, close quote, of the Soyuz third stage and the progress due to decompression of the rocket's fuel tanks. And that's been, they're saying that cause is an unaccounted design anomaly, which they are still kind of looking at, but they're certifying that uh, they may be ready to fly Soyuz again, which I believe, uh, Sawyer, if you could check me on this one, it looks like they're looking at possibly the end of this month that the next ISS crew will be going up to uh, the International Space Station. That's tentatively set for, I believe, around, I want to say June 25th, 26th, that time frame, and I believe, too, since... Uh, Sarah Brightman has kind of decided she's going to sit this out. They will announce in the not-too-distant future to a new crew person to fill her seat. To give folks an idea of what's going to be happening tonight at about uh, 2.30 a.m., or should I say this morning, tomorrow morning about 2.30 a.m., this is uh, June 10th as we record this, the hatches in between the, uh, the Soyuz and... Uh, the ISS will close, uh, 6 a.m., Soyuz will separate from the ISS, and I believe, Sawyer, we're looking at touchdown somewhere around 9.43, I see, I think, correct? Yep, 9.43 a.m. Eastern Time, keeping in mind, though, they are landing in Kazakhstan, so local time is different. Right, right, so... But as you pointed out at the beginning of all this, Sawyer, the whole thing was triggered by the 59 progress failure, and we've had a couple of other little nonconformities going on on the Russian side of the house here, too. We've also lost a progr uh, progress. We've also lost a uh, proton booster during that period of time that was carrying a, uh, a Mexican satellite, which I think was built by Boeing. And uh, uh, we're not exactly too sure what the cause there was. The strike that we are sure, it was some sort of... Uh, it was some sort of known problem that they've been sort of tracking, and they're going to go ahead and fix that. But 
lately the the proton has not been the most reliable booster in the world it had been declared that at one point in its history and so far as now it's it's almost to, to borrow a phrase from Elon Musk it's almost getting to be a punchline to a joke and uh, so much so that the Russians are trying to accelerate the Angara program which is essentially a, another carrier rocket that it will be uh, put into place and the proton retired. I think it's been a long time for that, but this is just an endemic problem that, that Roscosmos seems to be having lately. Just, there's a lot of things going on in the background that to me, that somehow or other, something's off the rails there. I'm not exactly too sure how to pinpoint it. It's almost like it's it's almost like dry rot, you know, when you have a piece of wood and it looks really, really healthy on the outside, but you touch it and all of a sudden it falls apart. I tell you, it's, it's just this, this wild thing that's going on right now within Roscosmos. TASS reported a few weeks ago that there's widespread corruption going on. No surprise there. Uh, the Vasachny uh, Cosmodrome, which is currently under, under construction, has been faced with all sorts of corruption allegations, delays, and so on. You've had uh, hunger strikes over there where workers have decided to go on these hunger strikes because they haven't been paid. And according to Russian law, if I'm not mistaken, if you're not paid within a certain period of time, I think that period is within about 10 days of what your expected paycheck is, you don't have to return to the work site. So... You've got a lot of loyal workers that want to that believe in what they're working for, but after a while, the patience gets a little thin. So th there's a lot wrong going on in Roscosmos. I mean, there's a lot going going on with NASA too. The, you know, the budget problems and all that. But Roscosmos has got got its own problems right now, and I think things are just way off the rails. Yeah, it sounds a little crazy with the whole Russian government being the way it is. And we're going to talk a little bit more about NASA's opinion on Russia a little bit later, but. Um... It's with this unreliability with the Soyuz third stage, because this isn't the first time that an expedition crew has been delayed because of a Soyuz third stage failure. I believe it was back in 2011, there was another expedition that had to be delayed by a few days because a Soyuz rocket unmanned had a failure of the third stage after six minutes, crashed back down to the ocean. And Russia's thing is, well, we're not going to launch another manned mission until we try another unmanned mission. So. And and Sawyer, that I think was the launch that uh, just a few weeks ago. I think that was the one that preceded uh, the Atlantis touchdown. It, it was sort of one of these things where Russia was saying, "Oh, here we are. You know, the space shuttle program is over. It's had its problems, though. And you know, we've been in the business for X amount of years." We're trying to be as reliable, you know, we're more reliable and all this. And so welcome to the age of Soyuz, the age of reliability. And then three weeks later, that happens. So again, this just demonstrates the need for the United States to be able to launch astronauts again, not only just so that we can launch our own astronauts, but because no one nation should have a monopoly on being able to get people to space for exactly these kinds of reasons. Yeah, and Kat, that's one of the, the beauties of the commercial crew program. No one company either is going to have that right. We're going to be having two indi individual companies providing launch services. So if one of them cannot go ahead and, and launch crew for whatever reason, either a, you know, a production problem or something along the, those lines, the other one can step right back in there. And I think, too, we're seeing the wisdom of that play out in the commercial cargo program where you know orbital ATKs had their problems with the Antares booster that's being ironed out and uh, and Cygnus is going to fly again in November, but you know in the meantime SpaceX has taken over with the Dragon and they've been doing a, a, an exemplary job of taking over and getting cargo to the ISS. So again, that demonstrates the wisdom of that particular model. I think. Yeah, I think that was the, <laughs> for going back to it, that was the launch where we began our whole Soyuz Age of Reliability nonsense discussion. I think it went right back to that launch. So yep. history comes back to repeat itself. But as mentioned, they will not launch another manned mission until the unmanned Soyuz gets tested first. So the next progress mission is currently scheduled for July 3rd with the next manned mission scheduled for July 24th. So the crew up there is going to have some time to themselves. 
And I'll add, Sawyer, that uh, a Russian uh, Soyuz booster was launched over the weekend. It carried a military satellite, which is why it didn't get a lot of airplay, and that launch supposedly went uh, very well. So fingers crossed on, on progress, and it hopefully we'll start seeing crew arrive at the ISS really soon. Exactly, and hopefully fewer failures, and <laughs> we'll see what ends up happening with all the other stuff with Russia. Uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later in this episode. Biting my nails. <laughs> Hold tight, because before we get to that, we have some NASA news to get to, some tests that have happened recently. So we've got a whole bunch of launches uh, of recent and some test flights and cool things to talk about with that. And the first one is LDSD, which has been compared to an, a flying saucer, a balloon with a rocket attached to it, a whole bunch of weird things. But... It was successfully launched from Hawaii this past week, but did have a little problem with one of the parachutes deploying. But overall, seemed like a relatively successful flight. Hopefully one of you guys can go a little bit more into what exactly it's about. Thanks, Sawyer. The Low Density Supersonic Decelerator, or LDSD, is essentially a testbed for reentry setups for, for Mars. They want to go ahead and see if we could go ahead and land larger objects, larger than the, the Curiosity rover, on the surface of Mars. And the whole purpose of the low-density supersonic decelerator, or LDSD, is test reentry uh, modes and so on. It is essentially, as Sawyer said, it kind of resembles a rather large flying saucer. It has a Star 48 solid rocket motor on board that... Uh, propels it a little higher. What the vehicle does, it gets carried by balloon, a large balloon. And uh, to give you an idea of, of how large when this thing is fully inflated, when it gets to its uh, altitude, its prime altitude, which is about 100 and I think it's 120,000 feet, the balloon inflates to the size, and if I recall the, uh, the public affairs officer during the coverage, to the size of almost the Rose Bowl if that gives you an idea of how huge this balloon is. And the the balloon itself is made out of the same type of plastic. If you want to go ahead and grab a, a shopping bag that you may have gotten from your supermarket, say, or if you, if you bought something from a department store, it's the same type of material. So, you know, you can see how kind of fragile the balloon really, really is. That's one of the reasons why they needed optimum weather. This thing was supposed to be launched last week. But due to weather conditions in the Hawaii area where they did launch it, it just did not, the, the weather wasn't conducive uh, during those, those few days. You want pretty much calm winds or winds that the balloon can handle aloft. And you also want calm seas so you could go ahead and recover the vehicle afterward. But to give you a little bit further insight into the whole purpose as to why this is, and this is coming directly from, from the press kit, They've, NASA really does have a lot of ambitious missions, you know, robotic missions from Mars, but also human missions. And this, is, this whole thing is, is set up to go ahead and test these things. The actual spacecraft or the actual craft was actually carried up to 120,000 feet, which I think is about three times the height that a 747 travels. Then it's let loose. The Star 48 engine fires and takes it uh, further up. And then cuts out at a speed of Mach 4. A balut fires out of the craft along with a, with a drag parachute, and that was one of the tests that we wanted to do. That, as Sawyer, you pointed out, that's what did not go all that well, uh, at least on, uh, on, uh, on television. You could actually see, if you were watching the coverage at all, you can actually see the parachute first get reesed, and then all of a sudden... Rip now. From what I recall from the uh, the press conference, they actually got some drag on the chute before it got torn apart. And I think the drag they recorded on the telemetry was almost, I want to say, eighty thousand pounds or something like that. I I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and check that. But they did start getting drag on on the chute before it ripped. That's not what they got the last time. The last time the thing just imploded. So. Again, everybody w was painting this thing as a bit of a disaster. It really wasn't. And NASA's actually saying that the 
the whole thing was a success. It was a success in that the experiment was conducted and it was conducted successfully. They were able to go ahead and get all the elements from the experiment back, but the one element did not perform all that well. And in my eyes, it, you still learn something because now you know, okay, fine, this didn't work. I've been looking at, at some things on, going on, on on the social media and so on, saying, yeah, okay, yeah, the thing failed. Well, no, it didn't. You learn something as you go ahead and do this. You learn how to, you know, how not to do things. And that, that was one of the big takeaways from this. And, you know, Gene, I just want to jump in a little bit to maybe, um, for those of our listeners, to contextualize LDSD in the large picture of things. LDSD is a landing system that's being designed to be able to land in the low density atmosphere of Mars. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about NASA's journey to Mars a lot on this show. So this is just one more of those little steps that's necessary in order to complete that journey to Mars. That's exactly correct. And that was some of the things that I was trying to drive home with folks. Everybody was saying, well, you know, Russia goes ahead and tests their parachute in a, in a wind tunnel. I said, well, we've tested ours in wind tunnels too, but the only way you can really test from Mars is to get up to the altitude where the atmosphere is that thin and it sort of simulates the Mars atmosphere, which is what we're trying to do with this. And again, this is just a stepping stone on our journey to Mars. And the great news about this is uh, another part of the devices that they're looking at is called the, uh, a supersonic inflatable aerodynamic decelerator, or SIAD. This thing is a very, very large balloon-like structure, which Sawyer kind of makes the, the, the test vehicle look like a flying saucer as it's coming in. And that performed from what I'm hearing like a champ. So we did, again, learn something there. So we're doing the right things to get to Mars right now. And I'd rather see us make mistakes and make, you know, kind of find out what doesn't work right close to home so we could go ahead and fix that and rather go to Mars and say, oops, uh, you don't want to hear that when you're almost, you know, 140 million miles from home. So. Exactly. And again, we've talked about it on this show previously. It's why I think all of us here on the show advocate for the moon as a test bed for Mars. Yeah. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Because <laughs> you've got to go ahead and, and see that. Now, I know back in April, uh, when uh, NASA's Bill Gerstenmaier talked at the Northeast Astronomy Forum, where he said he didn't think that the moon landing was going to be required for this thing. But learning in cislunar space would probably be the way to go. But you kind of got the feeling the door is still kind of open to that. And, and we'll just have to see what the future holds. Exactly, but that wasn't the only major test of a new concept, or new-ish concept, that happened within the last few weeks. Another one launched with the X-37B a few weeks back, and that was the light sail. Oh boy, yeah, light sail one, yeah. <laughs> that, that is one heck of a cool mission. First, it's privately funded by the Planetary Society, and uh, contributions from folks like, uh, you know, like you out there that probably made a contribution to light sail and made sure it got on board that Atlas V that took it for a ride. So if you're on board with that, pat yourself on the back. Also hats off to the Planetary Society. This is sort of, was sort of a, a plan that was first put together by Dr. Carl Sagan. He was talking about a, a possible vehicle that actually uses solar power to propel itself along the way in space. And this vehicle was set up to go ahead and, and test that. And uh, they had a couple of little uh, heart-wrenching moments with it where they weren't talking to the spacecraft, or the spacecraft wasn't talking to them. But finally, over this past weekend, spacecraft began downloading images from it. And uh, lo and behold, the, uh, the parasol is deployed that uh, has the uh, rectangular uh, sail. And it is moving along. Uh, it's moving along in orbit. Uh, to give you just a little bit of history here, the light sail was first uh, conceived. Uh, again, its first uh, flight was initially called Cosmos One, after, uh, uh, of course, the the series that uh, Carl Sagan had done, and it was uh, launched in 2005. But the initial vehicle was lost 
due to the failure of a, of a Russian booster that it was on. Uh, we did talk a little bit about one of its relatives, NanoCLD. Uh, that was one of the things that uh, our very own Mark Redman talked about, where it was supposedly going to be deployed. Unfortunately, NanoCLD had failed to attain orbit back in uh, August of 2008 due to the uh, failure of a uh, Falcon 1 launch vehicle. But then uh, we had uh, this vehicle launched, as Sawyer, you pointed out, back in uh, just a couple of short weeks ago with the uh, Shadow EX-37B being the primary payload and this being the secondary. And uh, it is now doing its thing. It's now actually testing to see whether, whether or not using uh, solar power as a propulsion source uh, is actually practical. And uh, this is the first real good test of that. So hats off to the Planetary Society. Full disclosure, I'm a member. Again, if you want to find out more about what's going on with the light cell test, just visit uh, www.planetary.org forward slash blogs and take a look for Jason Davis, who I believe is covering the mission for updates. But again, uh, hats off to the Planetary Society for getting this going. So many interesting missions going on right now. There's even another one that has finally reached its assigned orbit after launching a while back, I believe, and that is Discover. Not the space shuttle Discovery, but Discover, right? I think yes. Kat has more info on that one. <laughs> yes, I do. So uh, Discover, or the Deep Space Climate Observatory, which is a NOAA satellite, was launched back in February, and it just in the last several days reached its finish line, which is uh, one million miles away from Earth at Lagrange Point 1, which is a place that allows it a stable orbit because of the gravitational pulls between the Sun and the Earth equalized, so it can stay out there, where it will be measuring space weather, uh, solar winds, helping NOAA to better interpret space weather data. It's actually NOAA's first operational satellite in deep space, so pretty exciting news that it uh, has reached its final orbit spot, one million miles away from Earth, or about 1.6 million kilometers away. Wow, so I guess it's just getting a bigger picture of the Earth to kind of see it better, I guess? So the satellite itself will be looking not so much at the Earth, although this will affect, um, you know, space weather does affect things in Earth, especially GPS satellites uh, can affect the way electronics work on Earth as well. Uh, but this satellite is really designed to look at space weather. So we're looking mainly at solar winds, and it's going to help set up the satellite data, and it's expected to become operational uh, this summer, is set to uh, come online with a new forecast model that's been developed by NOAA that will actually provide more accurate space weather predictions, which again, space weather is very important for satellites. Uh, so that's what this is looking at, at giving us. It's looking to give more accurate, better forecast models. It's looking to be able to make sure that we're able to use what assets and information is available to us to better predict weather that can affect the assets we have in space. And not only that, it will also, if it's going to go ahead and predict space weather, that impacts things down here too. It impacts the power grid in a, in a huge way. That the solar flare had actually taken out uh, part of the power grid in Canada some years back. So it's good to go ahead and take space weather seriously and Discover is going to go ahead and make sure that we do that. And actually yeah. it's quite incredible. Um, they say it'll typically be able to provide 15 to 60 minute warning time before a coronal mass ejection. And that's going to have so many applications, like, like you said, Gene, on Earth, as well as among satellites. So we need to be prepared the more we get dependent on electricity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, Discover is going to be replacing some older NASA equipment, NASA's Advanced Composition Explorer research satellite, which is um, America's current first warning system and primary warning system for uh, solar magnetic storms that are headed towards Earth that, you know, again, affect those things. Big things are satellites. That affects GPS navigation, which has a ripple-down effect on things such as aviation. And as Gene mentioned, power grids and other 
effects that happen when there's a large solar storm coming towards us. Not just the nice ones that we all like to see, the aurora, but uh, there are negative side effects to that as well. There you go. And people say climate change doesn't exist. Hopefully satellites like these will prove them wrong. Even if it is space weather related instead, but still so much cool stuff going on out in space between those three missions right there alone. And that's only the beginning. There's so many other missions going on, like New Horizons later this month, and oh, so much cool stuff. Let me not get ahead of myself here, though. We've got more things to talk about. And next up is Commercial Crew. Now, it's a topic we talk about quite often here, but lately in the news, NASA has awarded its first contract in the next version of its manned commercial crew development. And that went to Boeing's CST-100. What does this mean for SpaceX? Pretty much nothing, right? Yeah, Sawyer, pretty much nothing is right. It just simply means that Boeing has been awarded the contract first. SpaceX will be awarded a similar contract later on. There was a big misnomer in the news when that news was released a while back ago. And I just want to clear something up. It doesn't mean that Boeing has won the contract to be the first ones to launch crew from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station to the International Space Station. That's not the case. It just simply means that Boeing has been awarded a contract to carry out that work. Who will be first? That's, that's still, no pun intended, up in the air. And so these two companies will be slugging it out for that honor. I would assume later on in the coming months that a similar contract will be awarded to SpaceX. And uh, work will continue on both the CST-100, which is Boeing's entry, and of course the Crew Dragon, which is SpaceX's entry. And it will be, I have a funny feeling, it's going to be a race down the wire as far as who's actually going to get the honor. I should also add, too that uh, recently in, in full in uh, just just for for equal time that uh, the pad abort test that SpaceX carried out just a couple of weeks ago today there was a press release or should I say yesterday I'm sorry there was a pr press release by NASA indicating that the pad abort test that was carried out by SpaceX was successful it had passed all of the criteria John Cowart who is the uh, the SpaceX uh, program manager for NASA, he is the commercial crew liaison for NASA for SpaceX, basically gave it high marks and was quite pleased with the results. And so another feather in SpaceX's cap to continue to pursue their work. So again, the two companies are, are making news and, and are going about their business, but who's going to actually get that first ride? Who knows at this point? Exactly. The main takeaway from this is that SpaceX will eventually get their contract, it seems like, later this year. But this means that we've got two companies that are getting that much closer to finally launching people back into space from American soil. Even if it isn't on a NASA rocket, this is a great start. Yeah, 2017, I believe, is the deadline. December 2017 is when both uh, companies have the deadline to start getting, uh, getting crew to the, uh, to the International Space Station. And uh, so we'll, we'll see how everything goes, barring the budget issues, and we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, both companies are working very hard to make that demo. Exactly. So we've got some exciting news there on the commercial front. And within the next few years, we may have people launching into space aboard commercial rockets. Who would have thought that would be happening when we started this show five years ago? It's amazing. Because at this rate, it doesn't seem like NASA is going to be doing that anytime soon as the latest round of NASA budget information has come out. And as it's going through the House and Senate, well, one of the initial reports said they would probably get about the amount of money they were asking for, but not allocated in the way that they were asking for. And it seems like a lot of that is going to be taken away from commercial crew and SLS and all the things that we're looking forward to here, right? Well, it, not so much the Space Launch System or Orion. I think that pretty much is bulletproof in this latest Senate bill. There was a summary today that was released by the Senate uh, committee that funding for SLS increased by $544 million from the request to $1.9 billion 
and it also adds uh, about uh, 104 million for the Orion crew vehicle. That is funded to the tune of 1.2 billion. However, the problem here is commercial crew. Commercial crew unfortunately took a hit. It received about 900 million dollars uh, in the bill. Uh, that is 344 million less than what was requested. So, you know, we're talking about launching U.S. astronauts to the International Space Station from U.S. soil by 2017. That 344 million was a nice chunk of change and was really, really needed to make sure that both Boeing and SpaceX are able to go ahead and carry out their missions which was to get crew to the International Space Station. And judging by what we were saying in the beginning of the program, with Russia having its problems with, with Soyuz, with its boosters, and unfortunately, it's sort of hobbling along, in my opinion. Um, and I, I'm not too sure that the house cleaning that's going to be required over there is going to take place. What do we want to do here? I mean, I, I agree, yes, we have to robustly fund the space launch system. Yes, we have to robustly fund the Orion crew exploration vehicle. Those are going to be linchpins on our journey to Mars. These are going to be the two vehicles that are going to carry things out to the next level and get us to Mars. However, we still have to robustly fund commercial crew. We need that right now. And having a dual system, as, uh, as I was referring to earlier, the wisdom of that is quite clear. We've seen it because, again, I'll, I'll just be redundant here for a moment. We've seen it again with the commercial cargo program where one provider had some issues. The other provider was able to continue. So having two providers here to get crew to the ISS would also come into play here. Right now, we only have one, and it's not even here in the United States. Russia is providing the whole thing. So right now, to, in order to get crew to the International Space Station, we have all our eggs in one basket, and that basket is called Soyuz, and it's about 50 years old. No, you know, Yeah, it's tried and true, but it is showing its age. And ditto with the support system around it. It is showing its age. If we could go ahead and augment Soyuz with these two new spacecraft and get these two spacecraft up and going soonest, then I think we're going to be in good shape. And I think one thing we do need to keep in mind here is that, you know, for our listeners who may not follow politics closely or understand the political process at this point, these are appropriation committee meetings. So if you... A little bit ago, the House Appropriations Committee met, and they actually provided different amounts for each of these budget line items. For instance, one thing that we spoke about somewhat extensively on the program was the science budget when the House Appropriations budget recommendations came out. And they you know, severely cut Earth science That's funding right. in favor of other uh, funding. The Senate version of this coming out of the Senate appropriation bills actually just allocates $5.3 billion for science, which is a little bit above what the House allocated and doesn't allocate out for different types of science. So when we're looking at this, this is kind of the first step coming out of the Senate Appropriations Bill. It will actually go to the full floor tomorrow, and Senator Barbara uh, Mikulski of Maryland is planning on putting forth an amendment to restore all recommended funding by the president's budget to commercial crews. So this is a story that isn't over. And again, with the political process, we have to keep in mind that this is a process. There are a lot of players with interest in the political process of funding NASA and private companies and American companies. So expect to hear people speaking up that it is important to support American endeavors for reasons that we've discussed here. But when we think about policy and politicians, the reasons that we find important are not always the reasons they find important. So that's where you get a lot of the rhetoric coming out of this saying, Charlie Bolden's statement that he released about this talked about we cannot invest this money in the Russian economy. We need to invest it in the American economy. So this bill uh, and the budget isn't done yet. It will go to the full Senate floor. And then even then, 
both of the versions of the budget, the House version and the Senate budget, have to be reconciled with each other. So this is a, a developing and ongoing story. Yes, it's very important that we fully fund commercial crew because with the issues with Soyuz, we see that we have a need for we, as the American public, to launch our own astronauts, but also because we want to reinvest this money in our own economy and not in Russia's economy. So this is an ongoing developing story, and I expect that we will see some more money back into commercial crew, just kind of with my experience in watching these bills and watching how policy and politics work. I would expect to see some money back into it, whether or not it gets up to the fully requested amount from Obama's fiscal year 16 budget. That's maybe questionable, but I would expect to see a little bit more. Yeah, we're going to go back and play. Let's make a deal on on this. That's and then finally, this thing's going to get cobbled out. But just to quote NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden here, he released this statement today with reference to the Senate's budget here, specifically geared toward the commercial crew uh, allocation. Quote. I am deeply disappointed that the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee does not fully support NASA's plan to once again launch American astronauts from U.S. soil as soon as possible and instead favors continuing to write checks to Russia. Remarkably, the Senate reduced its funding for our commercial crew program further than the House already does compared to the President's budget. By gutting this program, and turning our backs on U.S. industry, NASA will be forced to continue to rely on Russia to get its astronauts to space and continue to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into the Russian economy rather than our own. I support investing in America so we can once again launch our astronauts on American vehicles. Close quote. Yeah, that sounded rather scathing, but Kev, as you pointed out, this is just another step in the process. So hopefully when things ha get hashed out, hopefully Barbara McCluskey's valiant effort to go ahead and put that uh, $344 million back into the uh, mix will succeed. And I believe she'll have, uh, I believe uh, Senator Bill Nelson from Florida will also be assisting with that. So fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we always try and stress this. If you want to have a say, hey, if you're listening right now, you're in the United States, call your senator, call your congressman, let them know that this issue is important to you and let your voice be heard. Or go ahead and the best thing to do, everybody says write an email, no. The most effective thing to do is go to your word processor, type up a note, invest a stamp, throw it into an envelope and say vote on this. But yeah, if you're trying to get the immediacy, and this definitely would be the immediacy, call your hired help on the Hill. Let them know what's going on. Let them know what your thoughts are. And then, you know, invest the time and, and let people know that, yeah, you are thinking about the U.S. space program. And you'll probably get some interesting input from your hired representative, because if you're in a state that maybe does not have a NASA center in there, or maybe not have a very deep connection with the space program, I think you're going to surprise your senator or congressman with, with your notes. So, again, let them know you do support commercial crew or let them know that you support NASA in general and in, invest, uh, invest some time. Exactly. I feel like we talk about this every single year. Oh, wait, we do because it's the NASA budget. But it has to be talked about for any attention to be brought up to it, and we will bring it to attention. And we keep, you know, thrumming this same drumbeat about contacting your representatives because, for one thing, all of us have done that and have found that they do listen. But the other thing is, I want to restress what Gene said, especially if you live in a state without a NASA center. Make sure that you get this onto their radar because, depending on where you live, it might not be as much on your representative's radar. And not enough people write in. You'd be surprised at how much of an impact it can have. Very, very true. All right, now before we go, we have two small little things to talk about. And one of them is quickly becoming a favorite segment here in 2015. Even though we've only had a few episodes, we always like to feature a spinoff. And Cassie, what do we have this week? Well, Sawyer, this week we have what I think is a particularly interesting spinoff. Because it has to do with 
well, what I think might be everybody's favorite humanoid robots. <laughs> um, this week's technology is, we're talking about a company called Universal Robotics. And before it began, there was a professor at Vanderbilt University, Dr. Richard Allen Peters, who had been studying how mammals learn and how mammals translate the information they get through their senses into usable knowledge. So when NASA and DARPA were developing RoboNot1, they put out a call for technologies for artificial intelligence, and Dr. Peters stepped up with his research, and he created algorithms that would mimic the process that we go through when we use our senses to learn about how to deal with a situation. And so it uses, it can use a combination of all different kinds of sensors to analyze, say, an object in front of it that it needs to move and figure out how much weight it needs to pick up and how sensitive and fragile the object is and how it should treat it. This was initially tested in 2006 on Robonaut 1, and that same technology was then further developed as they started developing Robonaut 2, to the point where some of Dr. Peter's students were on the team for Robonaut 2 in taking this technology to the next level, to somewhere it couldn't go in 2006. And so, but it was originally for Robonaut 1, and after that project, Dr. Peter's he now has, of course, several patents in robot intelligence, and he went to a company called Universal Robotics, where he is the CTO, and they've now patented, developed, and deployed products, including, there are three products. One is Neocortex, which, according to the company's website, discovers patterns in chaotic environments that are relevant to an assigned task. It then analyzes those patterns to understand complexity improving process. So basically it's being used in industrial applications such as unloading pallets or moving bottles. Current robots or past robots that did these things could only work with, you had to input all the parameters of what it was loading or moving. Well, with Neocortex, the robot itself can look at the object figure out how to move it, and adjust according to each one. So you can have a load of pallets that are carrying entirely different things, and it will not only be able to figure out its weight and the spatial relations, how to make it go into the new spot, but where it's the heaviest and might need a little extra pressure to hold it up. So... Basically, it makes robots a lot better than humans at unloading things. And it also can do randomized bin picking and even bag picking. So it can pick up fragile and sensitive bags out of bins, select the right bag, put the right amount of pressure to not harm it, and everything. Now, how it does this is it uses software. There's two versions of it, Spatial Vision Robotics and spatial vision inspection. The spatial vision robotics is 3D vision guidance software and the spatial vision inspection provides multi-dimensional inspection and tracking of complex objects. And so it can work with objects of all different sizes and shapes and these, both of those systems work with the neocortex. And they can also work with any camera system, any sensor system, so they can be completely customized to your application. They even can work with a Kinect camera from an Xbox. <laughs> so it gives companies a really flexible way to put robots into these positions. And unloading uh, is a very dangerous job. It's... It creates repetitive motion injuries, there are problems with things falling, and of course just human error. And so basically these can eliminate all error and without having to have a human operating the robot and figuring all this out for it. The robot can actually take all this information, use its artificial intelligence to process it, and handle the task at hand. So it's got some pretty far-reaching applications. Cass, from a medical aspect, what would be one of the things that this would be able to go ahead and help us with? 
You know, I honestly do not know how to answer that question. I went through their website and a whole lot of articles about them, and I didn't see any mention of medical application. I don't think that's even on their radar. Okay, well, so what uh, are we talking about possibly manufacturing applications yes. and, and things like that? Manufacturing, warehouses, a lot of it is about just moving things around warehouses. <laughs> okay, and so, but I can still see the wisdom of where this could go from a space ap application standpoint too, as well as a terrestrial applications point. So this is some, some pretty good stuff going on. Of course, when we're talking about robotics, we're, we're talking about uh, making sure we humans are sort of augmented to do the real interesting stuff, whereas a robot if, can do the really tough, heavy lifting, if you will. And, uh, right, especially in situations where humans are putting themselves in great risk of harm on a daily basis, just doing yep. their jobs. Yep, and and so you know you can already see uh, some of the aspects too, and also there's a military aspect to it too. There's also uh, you know, a policing aspect to it, you know, bomb disposal things like that. That will also be augmented with this. So this is there's some really good applications here. Absolutely, and of course, I was just talking about how Universal Robotics, the company, is using this technology, but they did work with NASA and DARPA on this, so this is technology that's out there in the world, and we see with Robonaut, the way, that, this is exactly, I don't know about you guys, I have shook Robonaut's hand, and once Robonaut put his arm around my shoulder, and it didn't hurt me. And that's because of this, <laughs> because it knew how to shake my hand <laughs> and how much pressure I could handle and things, you know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, that's, it's part of, it's basically what makes Robo not as human as it seems to be. If you've ever had the pleasure of meeting Robonaut too, or well, the earthbound version. <laughs> it's a weird thing. That's for sure. It's cool, but it's weird shaking hands with Robonaut. It is, right? It it really makes you realize how far we've come. And the halo look <laughs> oh, yeah. really adds to the whole thing. Oh, but there you go. NASA technology helping you out every day. And that's why we love to highlight a spinoff an episode. Thank you once again, Cassie. Thanks for giving me the chance. This, this is really exciting technology, so I'm glad I could share. All right. We're going to finish things off with one quick mention that, again, New Horizons is going to be flying by Pluto very soon. And as the saying goes, there's an app for that. Yeah, so there's actually two apps for that. One is I'll talk about uh, from NASA. You ever wonder how dim the sunlight is around Pluto? You know, it's, it's what, some three billion miles away? It's a lot weaker than it is here on Earth. But uh, there's an app to figure out what time by you would it be that would actually simulate the sunlight on Pluto? It's called Pluto Time, and it is, it's downloadable, I believe, on iTunes, or you can get it from, from the NASA website uh, or, or, or so on. And you could, you could go ahead and find out if you, know, you had the opportunity to stand on the surface of Pluto, what would the sun look like? And this application will go ahead and tell you exactly what time in your neck of the woods to step outside and experience Pluto time. So go ahead. It's, it's downloadable on, uh, I know it's uh, downloadable on uh, the, uh, the App Store on, uh, for Apple, but I also believe, too, it's downloadable on, on the NASA website. If you go to, um, I believe it's solarsystem.nasa.gov forward slash Pluto time, it's right there for, uh, for the taking. So go ahead and uh, download it and experience Pluto for yourself. And you said there's a second app? Yes, Sawyer, there is another app. This is brought to us by the same people who make Sky Safari and Starry Night which I don't know if any of you use those, but they are incredible. Those, those are astronomy programs. And this is Pluto Safari. And so it's their app that's just all about Pluto and New Horizons. It has countdowns to the Pluto flyby. It's got the history of Pluto, all kinds of facts about New Horizons, about the original discovery of Pluto right up to the plans for the flyby. And you can even do some fun things like they give you 
the info so you can calculate what your weight would be on Pluto and Sharon. And you can even vote on whether or not you think it was right for the IAU to make Pluto a dwarf planet. So it basically bundles up a bunch of fun stuff and good information with a useful countdown. There you go. Two awesome apps to go take a look at. And Starry Night is absolutely amazing, so I can only imagine how awesome that is. And NASA's software is usually pretty cool, too. So, all Oh, and I should play. mention, it also gives you the current location, which is probably the most fun part. <laughs> so you can see how close it's getting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's got to be awesome. I know, if they're for Android, I know what I'm downloading. <laughs> I have it on Android, so, yeah, it's available. Guess what I'm doing as soon as we finish recording. <laughs> But thank you for sharing those apps. Those are always awesome tools. In addition to having an app to listen to Talking Space, just, you know, whether that be iTunes or some other podcast client, you can always take us with you on the go. But with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. And I just want to go ahead and wish a member of our panel a safe trip. Kat, you're... T- taking a nice little flight uh, out to uh, to Turkey right after this. So again, uh, bon voyage. We won't see you for a little while, but uh, we'll keep your seat warm for you. Thank you so much, Gina. I appreciate it. Headed to, uh, as you said, I'm headed to Turkey for two months on a State Department scholarship, and I will enjoy learning to speak Turkish a little bit better and uh, perhaps practicing one day to interview someone from the one-day-forming Turkish Space Agency. They keep saying it's going to happen, and it might. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that, which thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Again, always a pleasure to be here, and I wish everyone a wonderful summer while I'm off adventuring. Yes, and thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Thank you so much. It was quite an exciting week, and uh, or month, as you said, and so hopefully we will... Be back on next week, and there will be tons more to talk about. Oh, there's always tons to talk about in the space (laughs) world. I know that was our fear after the shuttle program ended. What's there going to be to talk about? Thankfully, there has been no shortage, and we're glad you've all been along for the ride, and we hope you'll continue to stay along with us. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 